Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, the show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day. I'm above ground. That's good. I'm actually in a country that is safe. It is cold here in New Zealand. We're a bit on the freezy side, but hey, that's that's okay. And you know, what do you do when you when you're cold and freezy? You think of nice warm places. So what better to do than actually get a guest from the other side of the world who is at the moment sweating and having glasses of water and little ice cubes <laughs> dotted around the body to keep cool. So I've got Dr. Ashley Wellman here with me, and I'm that excited to explore her story and see what lessons we can learn from her. So Ashley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for coming onto my show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be a part of it. <laughs> How hot is it at the moment with you? Oh, 100 degrees here. Oh, yeah, right. Miserable oh. and definitely sweating. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is It is Texas. It is <laughs> It is what it is. Yes, it's, um, everything's bigger here, including the temperature. So. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly right. Now, we are, we are, I live in Rotorua, which is a small place, uh, and it is actually located inside a volcano, a dormant oh. volcano. Yeah. And which means we have got quite a, a beautiful microclimate. So if the the north gets cyclones and get get pounded with rain, we get five raindrops. Wow. And when the south gets parched, well, we get five raindrops. Um, so it's perfect. So it is. I'm pleased where we are at, and it's actually a very safe place. So the invitation is there. Once I'm the once the madness is, is is over, please come visit. We're a great place here. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm on the first flight after all this COVID gets over. Oh, with. please, so true, so true. Ashley, you are a doctor, and which is bloody cool. Now, a doctor doesn't need to be medicine. A doctor can be far more fascinating. What is your doctorate in? So my daughter would tell you I'm not a real doctor, but she's six. So what does she know? I <laughs> have my PhD in criminology, law, and society. Uh, I got it from the University of Florida. And uh, I actually specialize in homicide survivors, the family who survives a homicide, and sexual assault survivors, grief, trauma, uh, anything, you know, lighthearted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what my kind of area is. So um, I'm very blessed to work with some really strong, amazing people um, who have inspired me along the way. That's beautiful, isn't it? And you, that is, I guess, the story of our lives because you have no idea who you come across in your life because we all, we all are living our lives and, and, and death and trauma and grief is part and parcel of it. Mm -hmm. Yet it is something that so few of us actually talk about and learn to deal with. There is no course on how do you deal with, with death. There is no. nothing like that out there. It's weird, isn't it? It's, it's very weird. What's even more weird is how taboo we've made this subject. Mm. We all die. And I think there's this expectation of, you know, when, when an older person dies and they've lived their good life, you know, that's normal, but anything else, I mean, that's not a prescription we've heard about. We haven't heard of people dying suddenly in a car crash. You know, we don't, we don't deal with grief of a homicide or things like that. And so one of the things that I would love to see happen is to, for people to share stories of grief, of trauma and say there it's hard and messy, 
but there is also life after death mm. and death doesn't have to be the same that will forever be something to kind of fear and be an ugly word in your life mm. or a moment in your life. Mm. Very, very true. But I think that's, that's a, a sign of our society where we have developed into go back 50 years, 80 years, it would have been normal for your parents and great grandparents to slaughter an animal, mm -hmm. to actually uh, realize that they're, that you have to take a life in mm -hmm. order to eat. And it is, we are living in a society where meat comes from the supermarket, um, where, where we don't have that proximity to ending life. Hunters are being portrayed as cruel and, mm -hmm. and, and weird. I did, uh, a few years ago, I did a butcher's course. Oh, wow. So I learned, <laughs> I learned how to do that. And, and I did that in, in, a, in a very holistic kind of setting, a very, uh, with people barefoot on the grass oh. kind of a feeling. Yeah. And so, we, so yeah, we, we, we killed our own animals mm -hmm. and then took them apart. And to take a life was the, one of the most bizarre things. Mm -hmm. And it brought it close to me how deaf that this is actually something we never talk about and we yeah. never get exposed to. When people are dying nowadays, more often than not, they die in rest homes, they die in hospitals, they die on the street, as you have mentioned. Mm -hmm. they, are, they are dead. We don't see them dying. We are not part of that journey. And therefore, I think that is, that is one of the biggest problems that we have removed ourselves from reality so much. I think you're, I think you hit it right there. It's not real to us anymore. It's on the news. It's someone else. It's always someone else. You know, it's never going to be you. And so I think because we sensationalize so much of the death, um, especially in, in my country, you know, the violence is something that is, um, it's normalized and, you know, things are explained away that, oh, this person was doing drugs or this person was, you know, a dancer or this person smoked or this person drank. There's always an excuse and there's always that safe feeling that it's not going to happen to mm -hmm. us. And if it does, very rarely are we, you know, capable and, and, and ready to mm -hmm. handle that. And it's interesting that you say that because obviously you are, uh, I mean, first of all, we, we should go back in time because how the hell did you become a criminologist? That yeah, is, I'm, that, I'm weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm weird. I'm weird. Okay. That's why you are on the show here. Yes. yes. No, um, other than being odd, which has always kind of been my personality, I've, since I was a little girl, I've been obsessed with true crime. And yeah. uh, I remember being probably 10 and I made a binder for my FBI, you know, tryout that I wanted to be in the Federal Bureau of Investigations and be an agent. And so, you know, at high school part, I was the cool kid that would call my mom if we came out, you know, <laughs> be crying because I wanted to be in the federal government. And so to me, I, anything I could get my hands on about, you know, um, I don't know, serial killers or, you know, some kind of conspiracy theories or things like that. I loved it. And my dad actually really enjoys true crime too. My mom gets on to us about not, you know, like not at dinner or, you know, not again, let's not talk about all that. She, she would like to be as far removed from kind of the gruesome as possible. And so um, for my dad and I, it was just kind of a bond that we had. And then as I, as I grew up, um, I actually had a college advisor tell me, don't study that. 
because I could only be a police officer. That's what she told me, which is not true for anyone who loves crime. Um, but she, you know, she said, you don't want to be a police officer. So I kind of diverted from that and did special event planning and that kind of stuff as a, as a younger, younger girl. And then, um, I was working with law enforcement for one of my events. And as I was working with them, I said, why didn't I pursue my passion? Which is, I mean, come full circle. Again, I'm in the middle of you know, a period where I'm going, is it time to pursue your passion? You know, and I went, I went back to school and got my master's and PhD in criminology. Cool. How long did it take you? What is the... Um, Five years. I did it in the quickest, shortest time you can do. So usually it's about two years uh, for your master's, three years for your PhD after, you know, normal university. And um, some people usually take eight, nine years. I was in and out. I said, I got to get going. I really wanted to be in the community working and doing the research. Yeah, that I was doing out in the field. What did you specialize in for your uh, doctorate? Yeah, so I, I... had actually gone into this concept of I was going to study cold case homicides or unsolved homicides. And I wanted to know how police worked those cases and what those case files look like. And then one day, as I'm in this uh, police department working, this mom came in and she said, I just want to know what the happened to my daughter, you know, beep, <laughs> what happened to my daughter. And one of the detectives said, oh, Ashley will talk to you. And um, we sat outside for four hours talking about the, the murder of her daughter. And I remember continuously saying, I'm so sorry, I don't have answers for you. I'm so sorry, I don't have answers for you. And she said, I didn't come for answers. I came for someone to listen to me. And so that moment I said, well, maybe that's my calling is to share these stories that no one wants to talk about and that they're too scared to share. So I studied the lived experiences of cold case homicide families. And uh, since I've worked a lot with homicide survivors, um, that the term's kind of bizarre, but it's just the families left behind, you know, during homicides and sexual assault survivors and people trying to process unimaginable trauma. Wow. Wow, what a journey. But it only shows that if you expose yourself to the universe, sometimes the universe calls upon you in the most surprising ways. And here you found yourself suddenly with a calling. Wow, wow. It is quite a challenging a challenging thing. So for me for example as a doctor i i felt compelled to help people where there was little hope people with chronic pain mm-hmm. things like that and unfortunately i did not have the support and the the the, the system in place to help me deal with all the emotions that were offloaded onto me I mean, what is there? Is there a system in place for you professionally to get counseling this way? Well, so we're not real great about mental health in America. We're trying to get better. Um, that's not really something that professionally is, you know, highly su- supported for us. But for me, one, I felt this deep calling and need to do it, which for I would talk to a family, I'd get back in the car, and I would say, "Thank you, God, for not." allowing me to understand this on the level that, you know, I could thank you for making, you know, having my family healthy and happy and a lot of journaling, a lot of meditation, a lot of kind of uh, reflection on their stories. And again, I would, at the end of each one, I would, I would seek that resilience and that hope and the joy that these families were sharing with me in the midst of pain, 
in the midst of trauma, there was always something beautiful about their story. And so I would keep that in my head to kind of, you know, keep me on a healthy path and hugging on a beautiful baby and, you know, loving on your family. That definitely helps a lot as well. Okay. Wow. Wow. No, I didn't have that. Um, mm-hmm. I hit the bottle. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not, I uh, didn't hug the baby. Um, so uh, there are obviously different choices that we all make. And I think yours was far better than mine. Having said that, um, here you were, a criminologist mm-hmm. who has developed a passion for the field, who has has worked. And, and you're a young woman. You're out there. You have got the... the, the the happy, bouncy, go-getter, I'll do that. Well, nine years? Nah, we do that in five years. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, I'm going to change, I, I change the world. That. That's, That's right. It's right. But then one day, one day the world said, nah, you're a bit too mm. cocky. Mm. Let's humble you. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. So like you were saying, you know, I was on this jet setting path of being super successful as an academic. And it's so bizarre because if you're not in academia, success looks so radically different. And for an academic, it's very prescribed. You get a tenure track job, you, you know, you proceed towards this position where you're going to be super secure and have this, you know, this job. And um, I did, I did that. I got tenure at one of my universities and I wasn't happy. And so my husband said, let's jump, let's move. And we did. And we ended up here in Texas. Um, I gave up a lot. I gave up a title of associate professor to step down to a a much lower position with a promise of moving up. And we get here. And I remember being so excited about a new chapter. And the day before I started school, my husband, uh, Buddy, at the, you know, um, he said, Hey mama, go upstairs and take a nap. He was watching golf. I don't know if golf's a big thing where you are, but he loved nah, Good. I don't get it either. Um, so he loved tiger woods and tiger woods was actually winning this golf tournament and I hate golf. So he told me, you know, go take a nap, which I will never turn down. So I went upstairs in our condo. Um, and immediately as I got into bed, I heard this glass break downstairs And I screamed down thinking my little girl had broken something. You know, I said, what broke? And he said, you know, nobody said anything. And I kept screaming and I said, buddy, what broke? And nothing. So I run down the stairs. I knew something was wrong. And I run down and I see him lying in the middle of the hallway, seizing. And I panicked. I just started screaming and I ran upstairs to get my phone, come back down. I'm calling 911, which is our emergency response number. And in that time, my four-year-old daughter has come around the corner and she sees him and the sight is horrific. You know, he's gasping for air and his eyes, he looks terrified. And my little girl's screaming, you know, save my dad, please save my dad. What's wrong with dad? And in the moment I could not attend to her. You know, I, in hindsight for, for months, I was like, I was such a bad mom in that moment, but I wasn't, you know, I was doing the best I could, but I really felt guilt um, for that in the moment. and. I was screaming for him to wake up and I kept, you know, slapping his face and grabbing his face. And, um, the 911 operator said, you know, Ashley, you got to calm down. People are coming to help you. So fire trucks come, ambulances come and they get us out of the house and they say, he's okay. He has a heartbeat. And as long as he maintains a heartbeat, he's going to be okay. And so in in that moment, when they said that, I said, okay, okay, okay. 
I am going to think of what, what am I going to say to him when he wakes up? And my thought was like, I was going to say, you son of a bitch, you know, don't, don't ever do that to me again, because he's such a critical part of, of my life. And I couldn't imagine, I mean, everything that I had predicted for my life included him by my side. And then another ambulance comes up and another fire truck comes up and they run inside and I keep asking, is he breathing? Is he breathing? Does he have a heart rate? And no one answers me. So finally I grabbed onto this guy's shirt and I said, tell me, does he have a you know expletive heartbeat? Yes or no. And he says, no, he doesn't. And I went, oh my God. Oh my God. So immediately it changes like, this is not going to be good. I follow the ambulance to the emergency room. They tried for 60 minutes to resuscitate him in front of me, which is another very traumatic image. Um, I never knew how violent that was. His poor little body's lying there and, you know, they're hurting him is what it looks like. And um, they got him back four times. So each time I was like, oh God, okay, okay, we're going to be all right. And finally the, the doctor turned to me and she said, stop it. And I was taken aback, you know, cause I'm cheerleading for him to live. And she said, stop it. If he wakes up, he's brain dead. And she said, you need to stop. And in that moment, I knew we had had a conversation many times that said, if that's ever my reality, do not let me live like that, you know? And so we stopped. And in that moment, my whole world crashed down around me. You know, I had the perfect family and this, you know, great job that I was going to pursue. And um, I got to be the mom that I could say, you know, I'm, I got to go to work. I got to do this and that. And all of a sudden, in a moment, I'm a widow at 34. I'm a single mom. My best friend in the world is dead. And I watched it. My daughter watched it, you know, and I remember kissing him goodbye and saying, um, it was so scary because I didn't want them to take him, you know? And I kept saying like, where, where are you taking him? Are you going to take him away? And they said, you can stay as long as you want and, you know, say goodbye to him, which is odd. You know, it's like, how do you, how do you do that? And so I said, you know, I kissed on him for a minute and I said, I'm sorry, I couldn't save you but I promise you I'm going to give your daughter a life that she deserves. And I didn't know how I was going to do that, you know, and it was, it was odd because there was a moment as I'm telling him goodbye, I could feel a dramatic difference. You know, like in one moment I was kissing my husband and, and think, thinking, you know, I'm having a conversation to say goodbye. And then a moment later I could almost feel his spirit leave where it was just a body and it was very scary and I got very uncomfortable. And so I told him, you know, take him, um, and then, you know, it's kind of like, okay, go home. And that was where I was left. Don't, don't. Do you want to take a moment? No, I'm good. It's really hard to listen to that because for me as an anesthetist, I've been part of, of resuscitation teams for most of my life. We get called when shit hits the fan and we get called when there are patients like your husband are arriving in the emergency department. I think for me as a doctor, I want to just 
shed a bit of light onto onto what has occurred there. Firstly, again, we are so removed from from the real life. Mm -hmm. When we see uh, resuscitations in films, first of all, 80% of them, the patients survive mm -hmm. and uh, typically look up and shake it off and kiss their rescuer. <laughs> what a heap of bullshit. Awful. It was I awful. Know. I know. So when you come to a point where you need chest compressions and breathing, then the, the odds are stacked against you, mm -hmm. number one. Mm -hmm. Mm. Number two, in order to keep the blood pumping around, what we need to do is we need to compress the chest by one third mm -hmm. to actually be mm -hmm. efficient. So the little bit of that you see in films, no, no, no. So when you say it looked traumatic, I can very much yeah. appreciate that because we are literally jumping. Yeah, I down. saw so many people... There must have been nine or 10 people that were alternating in a circle trying to do CPR on him. And I'm talking like a six, six man who's crying while he's doing it, which was so sweet. You know, like in hindsight, mm. I'm like, God bless him. He, his heart was breaking because he knew what was going on. You know, mm. he knew he wasn't going to make it. Mm. And here's this young woman screaming for her husband to live, you know, mm. so he's doing it and you can hear his chest breaking. Mm. I could see bruising already starting. There was, it was just, he looked, you know, it almost deforms the human being because mm. his whole chest was ruined. And so you know, we watch Grey's Anatomy over here, you know, that's like a big show or ER or whatever. Mm. And it does, it seems so, oh, it's so gentle and it's going to be great. I, it was, uh, that was an added layer of trauma for yeah. sure. Yeah. But then at the same token, we doctors have learned that it is so important to actually have the family mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. for us to, or for me, if I was, God forbid, if I was in your situation and I see that my wife is in severe trouble and then someone pushes me out the door and closes yeah. the door oh, on me. I, oh boy, oh boy, no. It'd be bad. So whenever I ran or was part of a, of a, of a resuscitation, I always made sure that relatives were there, but that there was mm -hmm. a nurse standing mm -hmm. with the relatives and was quietly explaining what we were doing, why we were doing it, and that we were doing our utmost to rescue mm -hmm. the life of their loved ones. I, I will say in hindsight, one of the things that did, it, it was, I wouldn't have traded it for the world because I made a promise to be with him till death do us part and through sickness and in health. And I was, I was there till he got to say, you know, till they said he was gone. And um, even, you know, even through the cremation process, I remember kissing him goodbye. And I said, I, I told you I'd be here till the end. And I am. And so I remember thinking, like, I don't know if I can see him again before he was cremated, you know, and I said, the last time I saw him, he had tubes and blood and all kinds of stuff. And so I remember going in there and, and kissing him goodbye. And it was the most beautiful moment of my life because he was so peaceful. He wasn't hurting anymore. And I got to say goodbye to him and, and I honored my vows and, you know, it kind of came full circle to say, yes, that was horrific. But had I not been there, you know, I would have questioned what if my cheerleader would have saved him? What if he had heard my voice, you know, <laughs> and we did everything we could have done. And, you know, it was just his time and it makes no sense and it's unfair and it sucks. <laughs> 
but it was just his time. And so, you know, the world stopped and said, you know, time it's, you're going to rewrite what you thought was going to happen. How old was he when he passed away? He was 44. Um, really, really, really healthy. Um, he had a pulmonary embolism come to find out there had been no leg injuries. He had not been traveling. There had been no pain in his legs, nothing. Um, but somehow a clot caught in his lungs. And, you know, so in hindsight, you know, I was thinking, you know, should I have done CPR? Should I have done this and that? And it wouldn't have helped because that clot was, you know, so large that they said it was instantaneous that there's no way he could have survived that. And I guess it just shows that nothing is can be taken for granted. Yeah. We've, as a, as a doctor and as nurses, there are so many times when I look uh, one of my colleagues or one of my nurses in the eyes, and there's just this this moment of recognition because we say, look. You can't take anything for granted. You don't know what tomorrow brings. So right now, if you feel I really would love to to call my husband and tell him I love him, yeah. then then you do fucking it. well do it. Do okay, it. exactly. Yeah. Whenever you think yeah. about something, actually do it. Yeah. And and I make a point certainly in in my team to support that frame of mind, that yeah. willingness to accept that death and nasty things are part and parcel of our life. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of when it hits you. And so yeah, we don't get to control that, yeah. you know? And I think we, we do, we live with such a forecast. I mean, our, how many trips had we said like, oh, one day we'll do this. And how many things have we said, <laughs> oh, one day together we're gonna do this. And so it is, it's one of those things where it's like, damn it. <laughs> You should have, you know, like, do it. If you have this idea that you want to do something, make mm. it happen. Because mm. life isn't guaranteed. Tomorrow's not guaranteed, you know. Mm. Damn. This must have been hitting you like a train. Yeah. Did your training help you at all? Or were you so close to what was happening that all those things that you learned and that you were telling others were sounding false and like a heap of shit. Both. <laughs> everything was shit. <laughs> so <laughs> everything around me was shit. Um, but both, you know, in, in the moment I literally was numb and paralyzed of what am I supposed to do? You know, it's like, bye, have a good day. You know, that <laughs> they didn't really say that, but that was kind of what it was like, bye, <laughs> exactly. you know? So yeah. And I was like, Okay, you know, no one told me how to raise a mourning baby and a grieving baby. Um, no one told me how to navigate life by myself because Buddy was such a kind of an anchor for me. I'm very much um, a dreamer and anxious and all of these things. And he was my low key anchor, you know, cheerleader, but like in moderation, you know, he'd make sure that things were done um, the way they needed to be done. And so I was thinking like, why me? Why would you leave me when he was, you know, I, in my head, I thought, you should have taken me, you know? And um, so I remember first thing I did was drive to Barnes and Noble, literally after I left the hospital, that's our big bookstore. Uh -huh. 
I drove straight to our big bookstore and I went to the children's department and I was crying in the aisle and this poor bookseller walks around. I'm like, so my husband just died. I need all of your children's bereavement books. And he was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> poor guy. I'm so sorry, whoever that was. <laughs> so I knew what I needed. I could not tell my daughter by myself. You know, I needed something. I had no family around. And so uh, I went and got these books, you know, How Do Dinosaurs Die and The Invisible String and, you know, everything else. And then I get home, someone brings my daughter back to me. And I remember her walking in and, and she said, oh, I brought dad this toy. You know, can I go give him the toy? And I said, you know, daddy's not here. And I knew the whole way home when I was driving and I knew my, you know, this person was bringing my daughter home. I said, you have to tell her the truth. There's no sugarcoating it. There's no dad's on vacation. Dad's in, you know, flying around. Dad is dead. He didn't go to sleep. You know what I mean? Because if she went to sleep, I knew she'd think, oh, well, she's going to die too. So I had to very much talk to her as an, as an adult in a little body, you know, and gently tell her daddy's heart didn't make it, you know, his body shut down, he died. And now he's going to heaven for us, our faith, you know, says he goes to heaven and she, you know, she knows who Jesus is and those kinds of things. So we talked about that and that she, he was with old Papa, which was his great grandfather who had just passed, you know, or his grandfather who had passed away. And so, um, you know, and the whales, she wailed, just wailed for, I, I would say weeks, you know, there would just be moments where she'd break into wailing for him and calling for him. And, um, but I knew that. So I knew that from my training, I needed to tell her as an adult, you know, like in real terms, what happened to her dad, um, in kid friendly terms. And, um, when I dropped her off at school a week later, I was so mad that he wasn't there. And so sad that I took her to her first day of school with her new little backpack. You know what I mean? And he wasn't there to walk her to class. I was mad. And so I broke down in the car as soon as I dropped her off and I drove straight to a grief support location. And I told them, I said, I cannot do this by myself. I need your help. I need you to help my daughter and I. Um, I also had heard about a therapy called EMDR. It's a, a rapid eye movement type of therapy to process trauma. I had suggested it to several of my sexual assault survivors and parents who, you know, had held their children while they died after being you know, shot or stabbed or something like that. And I said that that imagery adds so much emotional damage, you know, and so, so many layers that don't come with things like, oh, they gracefully passed away in their sleep. Do you know what I mean? Those kinds of things. They're still hurt, but that emotional, physical, visceral reaction isn't there in some deaths. You know, mine, there were there was a lot. And so I went to EMDR therapy to try to stop, you know, every time I closed my eyes, I wouldn't see him and um, dying, you know, and I wouldn't see the, the compressions in the CPR. It saved me. It was amazing. So now I can look at that, that moment holding him in the bathroom. And, you know, one of the questions she said was like, was he alone? And I said, no. And she's like, did you do the best you could? Yes. And she's like, in hindsight, he was gone there. That's where he stopped breathing, you know? And so she's like, he was no longer hurting and you were holding him. What more beautiful thing you were begging him to live. You know, she was like, what more beautiful moment than to have someone fight for you, you know? And so like, it kind of allowed me to get rid of some of the shame and grief and, and regret of should I have done something different? And then the emergency room sounds silly, but my daughter called him Superman, you know? And so in the emergency room, instead of him being nude 
and hurt and, you know, the chest compressions and things like that. She taught me to kind of turn down the noise and see it as a much more peaceful scene. So my doctors weren't doctors, they were angels because he was already dead, you know? And instead of being nude and hurt, he was wearing his Superman costume and could go, you know, be in heaven. And so it's those kinds of things. So even on, you know, two years later, if I close my eyes and I go to a really, you know, if I'm like, oh, I was the CPR, you know, like maybe a show triggers me or something. Then I'll sit back and I'll go, nope, that's not what happened. You know, that's not what happened. You know, he was already gone. The nurses are there as angels and he's in his Superman costume. So like that kind of, you know, that therapy that I had told people to go get saved me. And knowing you can't grieve by yourself. And, and then I think one of the things I have done right, I'm not perfect by, by any means, um, I've had really ugly days, but I think one of the most beautiful parts of our grief journey has been my commitment to grieving as an individual and as a family. And making sure that my daughter sees her mom grieve and cry and be mad and be disappointed, um, fail, (laughs) struggle, you know, because then she knows she's okay to do that. It's safe for her to do that. And so many people to protect their kids won't grieve with them. It's a balance. It's a balance because I could burden her with my grief. I'm not, you know, there's moments where I'm like, I need to step away. But I definitely make a cognizant effort if she sees me crying or walks in on me crying. It's not like, get away, get away, I'm fine. I'm not fine. And it's okay that I'm not fine. Um, And on days where she's not fine, I'm then a safe space for her to grieve. And it's so important. And you were, however stupid that may now sound, the lucky one, mm-hmm. because you knew there were grief support groups. Mm-hmm. You knew that there is a, a framework in place because you had recommended others to seek that help. But that is quite unusual. The reality, unfortunately, is that for many people I have met over the years, there is no support there. There is very short, very short support. Mm, yeah. yeah. And even, even friends and family, mm. we're not comfortable with it mm. and yeah. people can't do the uncomfortable. Yeah. And so it's hard. I mean, one of the biggest things I tell people is don't stop being there for people. Mm. You know, if you got to set a timer on your phone <laughs> three months later, check on, on your widow friend, you know, check in on the, the mother who just lost her child. Um, then do it again in six months, you know, and, and it's not just those first couple of weeks we need support and love, you know, that is so true. Mm-hmm. That is so true because then coming from an alcoholic point of view, I certainly, when I was in rehab, there were certainly, uh, two women in, in, in the same group of 20 or 15, however we were, um, who had lost their husbands and that led them uh, to spiral out of control. And it was the the occasional wine that very quickly led Mm. to free bottles of wine Mm. and numbing the pain that Mm. otherwise wouldn't go away. And and of course, surprise, surprise, there was no no support system in place for them. Mm. They kept quiet and people let them grieve in peace 
Don't yeah. leave us alone. We're, we're self-destructive. Don't leave us alone. I did. I mean, everybody does that. I think grief does uh, any kind of trauma people, the first reaction is like doing something that's kind of not you, you know, like mm. if my life is, is screwed and ruined, then drinking too much, you know, being promiscuous, gambling, those things become very easy, overeating, you know, all of that becomes very easy to, mm. to grab onto because if life is out of control, then I'm out of control too. And mm. I can kind of grab onto those, mm. um, yeah. you know, low hanging coping mechanisms. Um, I remember a friend said, are you tired of everyone visiting you? You know, I had people every weekend spending the night and coming in and, you know, I was in this condo that might've been 1300 square feet, 1200 square feet stacked on top of each other. You know, it's, it's so tight, so small. And I was like, get out of my space. You know, I needed to <laughs> grieve. I had one bathroom, you know, I was like, oh my gosh. And I, in in hindsight, the worst thing that could have happened was me being by myself. You know, Mm -hmm. it was beautiful that people knew to kind of just be like, Hey, we're coming. (laughs) We're going to take care of you and cook for you and play with Reagan and do whatever my daughter, you know, play with her, um, to give me time to go lie in the bathtub or do whatever I Mm -hmm. wanted to do. Um, I just saw someone ask on, on social media, what do I do for my friend who lost, suddenly lost her, her parents? And I said, don't ask her what to do. Mm. Just do. Hire a cleaner. Go over and tell her to go get a bath and clean her kitchen while she's doing it. Do you know what I mean? Qu- don't ask me to tell you what I need because I don't know what I need. <laughs> and instead, just do for, you know, bring food. It can always freeze if there's too much, you know. Um, just mm. show up because that'll that'll change people's, you know, whole, whole demeanor by knowing people are there and that they're I- not by themselves. And uh, and remember, whatever happens, guys, your brain will try to convince you that some of it or all of it is all your fault. Oh God! There is yes. shame and guilt and negative emotions, etc. So that is all hammering this person. Regardless, regardless, there's the survivor guilt. There is the, the, the guilt, oh my God, would I have known how to do CPR better? Maybe he or she would have survived. Mm-hmm. All these kind of things. There is so much crap going on in those, those people's mind. The best thing you can do is just to be there and mm-hmm. to actually, as you say, just be there and do mm-hmm. something very simple. And tell me you don't know what to do. That's awesome. Don't, you know, like, hey, Ash, my heart's broken. I don't know what to do, but I'm here. That's okay, because I don't know what to do. I don't expect you to know what to do. But I think one of the the hurtful things, which is in no way meant to be hurtful, is people explaining away and contextualizing death in, in these, you know, catchphrases of like, oh, he's in a better place. Oh, but he's in heaven. Oh, I was like, I, better place. What better place is there than with That's me? That's right, it's California. Do- right, like what? <laughs> yeah, what? Um, so, you know, these these kinds of things of like, oh, well, that was God's plan. I get it. I hate God right now for that. You know, like, I don't want to hear that. Um, so those kinds of things, even though they're meant to be helpful and they're set out of a place of just discomfort, right? Where that's yeah. the first thing that's blurted out of your mouth. Like, oh, uh, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss. I mean, he's in a better place. You know, yeah. it's like, don't say those things. Exactly. <laughs> it's better yeah. just to say, this is yeah. not fair. This sucks. Uh, this yeah. is hard. Um, I'm here and mean it. Hmm. So true. So true. Wow. Far out. Wow. 
Uh, there are certain stages of grief, and you seem to have gone through all of them more or less at the same time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they don't, there, there is no stage. Okay, so I do, I write about like, oh, Kubler-Ross, the stages of grief. <laughs> yeah. But there is no stage of grief. There's a picture that shows you like, oh, step one, two, three, four. And, and then there's one that has like scribbles all over it. That's what happens. I have moments now where I have something really big happen or Reagan has something really big happen or something gets triggered. And it, I'll go back to stage, you know, minus three. I don't, you know, there, there is no lateral, you know, linear path mm. to grief. And I think that's hard too, because we see it. I can Google grief and it pops up. Oh, here's your path. Mm. It's like Candyland, the mm. game, you know, like, oh, just do this doesn't work like that. And they don't talk about the fact that these, these stages may not happen. You might go back and forth between the different stages. And so mm. I think allowing being graceful to yourself and allowing yourself the grace mm. that hopefully we give to others, you know, and saying that 10 years from now, mm. you might jump back to being angry or mm. sad mm. or, you know, blame yourself or whatever. Um, and that's okay. That's normal. There, the stages of grief are not <laughs> not real. The bouncing, yeah, the linear thing mm. doesn't exist. No. Yeah. So I think that's important for people to know too. Is that it's okay when you don't follow that prescribed plan. Good stage. Yeah. Good. I couldn't agree more. And mm. and it's also okay to be numb. Mm. It is. It's certainly when when my uh, parents passed away. There was there was a time of numbness mm -hmm. where I thought, wow, I should be upset now. Mm -hmm. And I was cold, analytical. I was my brain just protected me. Yeah. Um, so it is okay that that you don't burst out in, in tears. And if you do, that's okay that's too. That's okay too. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and to so, do them in different 15 minutes in between each other. You know, for me, <laughs> for me, I had died, you know, I I dove back into work. Um, I had been given, you know, bereavement leave, which I'm incredibly thankful for. But I dove right back into work. And I think one of the immediate looking back, one of the immediate challenges was my colleagues, some of them did not know how to handle the widow in the department, you know? Mm. And so there was, you know, resentment in behavior. So if I was crying or if I was happy. You know, like both were kind of like, oh, I don't, you know, she, why is she joyful right now? So I was singing Christmas carols once and someone got, you know, got on to me. And, and then I was singing, uh, or then, you know, I was sobbing one day and, and oh. a colleague said, if you're crying a year from now, we're going to really have to get you some serious help. And I was like, or do we, can I, <laughs> well, I think I can cry a year from now. Mm. So I think um, other people, when they don't know how to handle you, because there is this prescribed way to grieve and oh she should be devastated oh why is she having fun at you know a social event mm. um you know all these things and, and and we become this weird enigma mm. and so with that there becomes a lot of kind of uh withdrawal from people who might have supported you a lot or might have mm. um you know for me it was my colleagues they were they actually blocked prevented me from getting this job i had been promised because i wasn't quote the woman that they thought i was um talk about hurtful, you know? Um, yeah. And so it was, you know, for me, that was another layer was that my career was the only thing that I knew how to do. You know, that's what I'm good at. And I had moved my family to this location to pursue this job. And because I quote, wasn't the woman they thought, 
despite high performance, <laughs> right? Despite exceeding the bar, they um, they ruled that I wasn't eligible for an entry level position eleven years into my career. So, in hindsight, also oh, grateful oh. for that. <laughs> also grateful for that. But you know, like this was only two years ago. That happened a year ago. So there's these added added things that you just don't think about the consequences that come at work you know i heard i heard somebody on a podcast recently say am i that big of a of a um burden for you that you can't be human to me you know i can't be treated as a human um she had lost her baby and gone back to work and they had treated her terribly you know because again it's a, uncomfortable that office is uncomfortable you know what i mean when they walk past mine so it's things you don't expect too that kind of put you um, in a different state of grief, you know, when you think you're doing really well, and then you kind of slide all the way back. I think I was in worse grief after the job reality than I was when Buddy passed away, because that was my control. I controlled that. And so fighting through grief to be successful at my job, and then being stopped from a position, you know, it was like, oh my God, the only thing normal in my life is now mm -hmm. gone, you know? Well, insult to injury, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. brutal. Very bad. <laughs> Are you still working in the same place? I am currently. Um, yes, but, but. <laughs> yeah, I was but, about to say, let's, let's cut but, the interview right yeah, now. No, <laughs> run. No, um, um, they're, they're aware. Um, I also have a great group of colleagues who have been phenomenal. They've been my family. And so I wouldn't trade, um, you know, you look back and you're like, things happen for a reason and they, it doesn't make them easier or better. So you can know they happen for a reason and still want to break things and throw your temper tantrum and feel terrible, you know, but um, that's actually what led me down a path that now I think is allowing me to be the woman I am, you know, the woman that, that I know that I am um, and be an example to my daughter. So they're shutting a door really did say, you know what, then I'm going to define who I am. I'm going to be the one who writes my story, not you. You think you, you think you wrote it. I'm going to turn the page. I'm going to write a brand new chapter and you're just not going to be a part of it. You know? uh, oh yeah. 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 And that's, I mean, and that's, and hold your head up high and be graceful. And, you know, I wish those people all the best and they made the decision they made and we'll both deal with, you know, with the consequences of that. Hmm. As I keep saying, whenever you are in an emergency in an airplane and the oxygen comes down, you need to pull the oxygen over your own face first. Mm -hmm. You need to look after yourself first. And what a shame for the department that uh, did not uh, fulfill their promise because mm. I think they're missing out on a great asset. I think they're missing out. <laughs> hey, look, it's a, well, boys, you will learn by hindsight. Yeah, um, right. No, there's no problem with that. But I want to change the tack a bit because so far we have been dealing with grief mm -hmm. in response to someone who you truly, truly, truly loved who you had a great relationship with and everything is fine. The problem, of course, is not all relationships are like that. And it's certainly uh, the relationship between me and my mother was uh, rocky to say the least. And I'm sure there was some psychopathology going on on her behalf. 
and I'm I was a pretty good going dick as well. So you know, it takes At least two you knew to, it. Oh, <laughs> two to tango, hey. Um, but it was hard. It was hard. It was actually brutal. There's unanswered questions, right? There's these correct. unanswered. Yeah. Correct. So you've got the additional layer of grieving for not having the mother that you wanted, for the grieving or the, the, the anger, for a resentment for something that she had done, said, etc. And that made it really, really difficult because now I had the roller coaster of grief. Mm-hmm. The, I had the guilt and shame of, oh my God, I was a bad son because mm-hmm. clearly it's all my fault. And then the realization, well, actually, no, she was a bitch. Um, and then dealing with that. And it is just for yeah. fuck's it's sake. A mess. It is, it's a mess. Oh. It's a mess. I do think I, do think I was blessed. I um I think one of the things that has allowed me to kind of go on this path was saying there weren't those unanswered questions. There wasn't a what, you know, what if I wish I had said this to him because I had made a point. I had been in an unhealthy relationship before. You know what I mean? So when I got with Buddy, it was a blessing. And I tried to remember and remind him as much as he reminded me. But a lot of families that I work with, they'll talk to me about this, especially with suicide or, you know, those kinds of things. They said we had issues. But now there's no way to solve it. You know, like I I wish, yes, yes, there were issues. Yes, we were sick, but now there's no way to fix it. And so death's so finite and only one party is left to to pick up the pieces. So you didn't have time with mom to say, you hurt me. And to her say, I know I did, you know, and, and acknowledge your feelings, process your feelings with you and attempt to move on or give you the choice to say that relationship's done. And I'm going to put it away. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't get to say that. Yeah. Someone took you. She got taken. So, yeah, it's it's uh, that that does it adds a whole mm. another. Mm. Mm. I guess I guess that's the really really important bit for you guys out there. So now that that you sort of listen to to Ash and me, there are there are many many unanswered questions, and we don't have the answers. We. We can only share our stories to say that, guys, you are not alone. Uh, there will be a, a roller coaster there, and that roller coaster might very well be coming out some years down the line. Because ultimately, mm-hmm. you are—you have not been dealing with it. You buried yourself in the work so much. You work the sixteen hours a day and then hit the bottle and you keep doing that for ten years because somehow your body holds out and somehow you don't end up with a DUI or with 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 a liver failure. But you just keep 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 burying it all. But it's still there. It still needs to be dealt with one day mm-hmm. and it will come out at a time, I assure you, when you least want it. And that's typically when you hit sort of rock bottom, when grief is really the underlying driver for your drinking, the underlying trauma that is festering and that is pushing you into behavior that you're really not proud of. And that only makes it then then worse. I think one of the things that I would encourage anyone who's struggling with trauma or grief and or grief is professional support. You know, it, it's a lot to have and a blessing to have family and friends around, but sometimes to have an unapologetic conversation with a professional who can rationalize and talk you through 
what you're feeling, how you're processing it, giving you different perspectives and having that kind of professional respect for one another. I, I, I was raised kind of like mental health wasn't, you know, we don't talk about those things and those are private things. And I don't want to be private with it. I want to share it with someone who gets paid to listen and, and doesn't know the players, you know, and, and I think something that reshaped who I was, was um, writing, creative writing and finding something that wasn't my normal job. You know what I mean? Or my normal definition of who this is, who I am. It was like giving yourself permission to, to find a new path, you know, and say that. Um, so for me, I would sit there and I would, I would paint and I would write and I would dance with my daughter and things that I really hadn't done and been silly allowing yourself to redefine that normal life, right? Cause it's not normal anymore. And so those new chapters, new experiences and not feeling guilty about allowing yourself new joyful things, I think is really, really important. <laughs> what to... are you laughing at? <laughs> <laughs> Just because it is such a beautiful thing you have said. Aww. And it is something that that echoes through every single interview that I do. It is, I, I spoke two, three weeks ago, I spoke to a, a, a PTSD sufferer, uh, a, a man who got shot up in, in Afghanistan oh, yeah. CQ. Yeah. And he, he, he spoke about his journey of grief, of grieving for his lost body. Mm -hmm. So to speak, mm -hmm. and and of of whatever defined him was gone. It's gone. And then for ten years he he went through a very bad journey, and then finally he got the help that he needed. He started exploring, and he started exploring with complete openness. Yeah. So when the yeah. Veterans Affairs said, "Do you want to uh, learn golf?" He said, "Sure, mm -hmm. show me how anything. to golf." Anything. Anything. And, then, and that's what I think. For me, I was so stuck on still being that successful scholar and that that yeah. woman who you know this is this is who I am. This is how. I to find myself it broke me I was broken I was so unhappy so unhealthy uh -huh. and it got to the point where the tears had gone from buddy to work and my daughter would be like are you crying over work you know I'm like yeah isn't that ridiculous like isn't that ridiculous with all that we've been through yeah. and to know that life is so short I'm crying about work something's wrong you know so then I'd sit down I'd be like you know what makes me happy yeah. writing you know yeah. and I would go and I'd oh, write beautiful yeah beautiful now, and you guys, if you thought that for the whole bloody interview, she was sitting to one side, that there is actually a reason, because for the eagle-eyed hawk eyes amongst you, you will see my friend Fresno on her right shoulder. Come on, introduce us to, to Fresno. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. So Fresno, this is Fresno as well. Um, Fresno is my daughter's best friend, and he's a posable skeleton. Remember, I'm a criminologist, right? So uh, who studies homicide. Yes. So as quirky and bizarre as I am, my daughter definitely got that gene from me. So oh, yes. <laughs> when she was two, uh, she actually adopted this skeleton from my office uh, to be her best friend. And they did everything together, taking baths, naps, movies. We take him everywhere. His name is Fresno, she named him. And so when Buddy died... A, a really great friend who literally has, has been a savior in my life. He said, he saw her picture and he said, Ashley, you should write a children's book about 
Reagan dancing with a skeleton because it's so beautiful and so dark and something that's normally scary for a child is something that she loves. And so he said, there's beauty in that, you know? And I thought back about like our own journey with Buddy's death. Does it always have to be scary and sad or can there be beauty in that? Do you know what I mean? And in our lives, even through scary bad, weird things. Yeah. And so for us, I wrote um, My Friend Fresno, the, uh, it's called The Girl Who Dances with the Skeletons, My Friend Fresno. And it's about Reagan falling in love with Fresno as a best friend, despite their differences. And the fact that things that are different don't have to be scary. You know, they can actually be the things that are oh. the greatest elements of our life if we're willing to learn about differences and celebrate, you know, what makes us unique. Oh, how beautiful. So fun. Oh, oh how beautiful. See, dances with wolves. Nah, yes, nah. with skeletons. <laughs> Who needs that? Exactly. Who needs wolves? <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful, beautiful. How old is Reagan now? She is six. Oh. And um, the funny thing, so she was four when yeah. tragedy hit us. Yeah. She's six now. She's thriving. She's beautiful. And art truly has been her mechanism, too. She's oh. in a performing arts school that she auditioned for and got into. Um, and she she's so fun. Um, but she actually functions as my little you know CEO, you know, CFO with me. She makes commercials and tells people where they can get the book. And it's just been fun for both of us to Excellent. be a team. You know, and my illustrator, I have to shout out about my illustrator. Um, I don't know if Thomas Kincaid is a huge hit uh, where you are, but he's called the painter of light. He's he was he's one of the most collected artists. And his nephew is my illustrator, Zach Kincaid. And he's his own in his own right, just a brilliant, brilliant artist um, who uh, I'm blessed to have been, you know, uh, partnered with his craft. So um, together we've said, you know, this is going to be a journey for us. My hope is that it can be a full-blown, you know, career path for me to find a way to say, you know what, I yeah. was a scholar. I will always advocate for my families and be in touch with my students, but I'm also allowed to rewrite the story the way I want to see it. Wow. Oh, how beautiful. <laughs> how beautiful. How long was your journey to write that book? Well, I started about, uh, about three months after but he passed away. Yeah. The book was written probably in a week with um, just a few a few tweaks here and there. My illustrator actually gave great feedback of the words, um, but he's an artist and you know took his time, which was worth every moment of the wait um, to do that. Good. In the meantime, I wrote a ghost novel, teen ghost novel that we're trying to publish traditionally and, yeah. um, and kind of going down the journey to say, what's weird and scary? Let's play with that. <laughs> kind of keep, keep my passion going that way. Well, exactly. And look yeah. at you, look at you, look at the sparkle in your eyes when you're saying that. I'm excited. That is, well, exactly. Exactly yeah. right. And yeah. that is, that is what his life is all about. Absolutely. You want to shout out about, about the beauty of life because that's really what it is all about. Yeah. Yes, there are dark moments, yeah. but those dark moments, they can break us mm -hmm. or they can define us. And they and can do both. They can do both. And I often enough, they broke. Ha yeah. They, they have to do one thing first. Yeah. And then. Yeah, there's no joke. So if you're in that breaking moment, you know, that breaking point, I remember I never imagined that I literally, we just released the book this week. I never would have imagined that I'd be telling people like, go buy 
a children's book that I wrote. Do you know what I mean? I was literally, I remember nights where I, I would sit there and go like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, you know? And, and it wasn't pretty. It, you know, I, I have friends that, you know, whether it was work or buddy that listened to so many calls that were of a broken heart, you know what I mean? Begging for someone to give me guidance. And again, I had to trust myself to rewrite that narrative. I had to do the dirty work. I had to get therapy. You know what I mean? I had to ask for help. And then by doing that, I got the strength to say, you know what? Nope. We both deserve a better life than what could be. And so we're making it together. Wow. 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 Oh, I need to, I need to get to know Fresno. So oh, I think please. I have to order your book. Please. So that's uh, <laughs> Order now, because if you go to our website, www.myfriendfresno.com, he's actually on pre-sale and ah, you can save when you order. So yes, nice. he's available right now. <laughs> Fantastic. And here I was hoping actually for a signed offer copy. You're yeah. going to get a signed copy. I promise. <laughs> I promise. I'm half kidding. Half kidding. <laughs> no, I'll sign it when you buy it. <laughs> I buy it definitely. Shit, yeah. Um, no, the point is, I am so pleased for you. I am so, so, so pleased for you. You have gone through hell and back and you kept going. And, and, and here you are now, two years down the line, recovering from a trauma that is as, as, oh, what do I want to say? There's so many words coming into my mind all at the same time. I'm, I'm, I'm actually struggling to Which formulate terrible this. terrible word? <laughs> no, it is, it is just, no, I don't want to put it terrible. It is challenging. Yeah. It is it's confusing, overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it is what it is. My life has not been pretty. But it is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's and a beautiful now, disaster, right? It can be a beautiful disaster. And right now we have got the chance, uh, the choice mm-hmm. to, we have got a chance to make a choice. Let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. Because you define yourself. You choose how to respond to whatever life throws you. There are times when you have to just roll with the punches and, and just, just, protect yourself. But then at some stage you come up for air and actually you take stock and you look at what actually has occurred. Okay. It is. And, and my life has stopped right now in the way that I've known it. And you don't have to be perfect in that. So I feel like certain people, you know, like we get to this point where if we failed or if we've struggled at a moment, it kind of says like, oh my God, now we're so much further back to get to a good no, spot. You no, know what I mean? No, no. It doesn't have to be like that. We're all, I have many moments in my grief journey that I'm like, I wish I hadn't done that. Mm. I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I had been more graceful with this. Do you know what I mean? I wish I hadn't um, you know, done X, Y, and Z. But I also give myself grace. And I say, you didn't have a manual. You didn't ask for this. <laughs> you didn't know what you were doing. So yeah, did you mess up right there? Sure did, but you're human. And that doesn't mean that that's a, you don't have to sit there and, and have a tally of like how off, how far you have to fight to get good. It just, <laughs> just get good. You know, like just say like, okay, that was in the past. And yeah. now, you know, reach out to any arm that you can grab and say, I, I will get better. And if you go back a few steps, that's okay. I love that. I absolutely mm-hmm. love that. No, brilliant. Ash, 
thank you so much You're for so sharing <laughs> for sharing what a, your story. What a mutually beautiful conversation. Thank you for sharing about your life and your relationship with mom and your own struggles mm-hmm. because it's nice to know that we're not alone. You know, as, as hard as it is to hear other people's struggles, it's nice mm-hmm. to know that there is joy, there is struggle, and they can mm-hmm. be simultaneously lived together. And um, it was just really nice to hear from you and share my experience. And uh, yeah, I I want to leave with that sentiment that it is normal to have a laugh and a cry. It is okay to laugh and the tears running down your face at the same time, because that's life. That is life. It is you are you are not a textbook kind of thing that is supposedly behaving like that if i want that i create a computer model of sorts yeah. no that's boring that's right that's boring. you are that mess that you are and celebrate that mess celebrate the the positive sides and learn from the negative sides and move on and create that new you that you deserve to be Ash, thank you so, so much for coming on to my show. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Bye.